We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. And so the distinction between atoms and bits, yes, you build those things differently, but they're not at war with each other. It's like, no, actually, if you're going to build real things in, in the 21st century, you need both. You need understanding of both. You need a respect for both. The best founders are off. And like they're off in different ways. They, they march to their own drum. And if they start excelling, you put them into the gifted class where then they're expected to sit in their chair and they're expected to like answer questions in a certain way. And then they go to a school where they're like expected to not be difficult and to not be disagreeable. I actually think one of the biggest challenges is finding those people who are naturally disagreeable and where that's been cultivated, where they have no problem coming into a meeting with their superiors and saying, you're wrong. I feel like if we had more of those people, we'd have more progress. Tech is much more aligned with the creative industries, with creative classes, with artists, writers, and, and that should be celebrated. A lot of the characters in this industry are much more like the people they would interact with or see who are making films, writing music, writing books. And, and, and actually like that, that, that's their power. And so by saying like, actually, no, don't say that word or don't, don't put out that song because that song's going to be offensive. Like you would never say that to Beyonce. Or actually now we do say that to Beyonce. So. <laughs> 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 If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Before we dive into Moment of Zen, I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. How's, uh, how's your weekend? Oh, you know, it's same old, same old. A lot of sound <laughs> of music. Yeah. <laughs> that's our newest obsession. Jack is obsessed with the sound of music. So that's Saturday night. That's great. Like, it's just, it's just been awesome to see this like little, little group become, become a big thing. It's only a sliver of the of the group chat, but it shows that it yeah it's it's uh it's, it's fun. It's the to... right sliver. It's the right sliver. It's the it's the most uh, argumentative and disagreeable sliver. Hey Dan, you're, you're on mute. How about now? 
Good to see you. Congratulations. I haven't I haven't seen you on video chat since you uh, added a new addition to the family. Yeah, I've been hiding, uh, but finally, finally coming out of the shell. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving the background. I'm feeling very patriotic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you must uh, be in a coastal blue city. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a Colorado flag. Uh, so from 18, what was it? 1872 to 1890. I think we had this flag. Uh, when Colorado was a state. So yeah, it's a, uh, I'm a big fan of Colorado. I think Colorado is the future of America. It's why not? Why not? It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a purple state. It's a state that they actually have to come up with compromise because it has a, as a mixture of, of people and it's not, uh, it's not monopolized by one party. The most moderate government. That's for sure. Yeah. Jared um, Paul's pro crypto tech entrepreneur. I mean, like greeting cards, like I, everything about Colorado. I like it's good. It's good. Yeah. Like they're, they're, uh, they're a, a different breed of people, that's for sure, uh, than, than the vast majority of people we interact with. Is Antonio joining or is he canceling again? <laughs> uh, he is joining, uh, but he's, <laughs> he said he's, uh, he's walking to Spindle two blocks away. I love the globe. It's like a, kind of like a marble stone thing. And you can't see like, I have a typewriter, an old typewriter here too. It's like, you know, it's very much like, I'm, you know, country, world disseminating information, misinformation. Harkening back to a different era. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I often thought like it's like, I've got the country thing going on. I don't have the God and country thing going on. It'd be hilarious just to have like one of those massive Irish giant crucifixes in the back, you know? It's like, that, that, would, that would turn people off immediately when you turn on your Zoom. <laughs> well, some, some people, right? Yeah, <laughs> everyone except the people on this chat. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we've got, you know, one and a half Jewish people on this chat. And so I think, you know, Antonio, Antonio is still in both worlds until, I don't know, I think next week. And and then he's fully, fully, you know, renounced his, his days of being a Christian. We'll, we'll, we'll claim as, he, he's once a Catholic. He's still in our tribe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, good morning, Catherine. By the way, this is, this is the most perfect. I have to comment on everyone's Zoom backdrop. This is the most perfect backdrop. I imagine this is where you act like the female Patton. You know, remember that movie Patton when you have that big speech in front of the American flag and you're sitting there lecturing your founders? That's imagining that's 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 exactly what this is. Peace, peace through strength, projecting, projecting, like just beating people over the head with what we stand for. Before you came on, I was like, I need one of those like, you know, God and country backgrounds, like a giant crucifix, like an Irish three foot crucifix with the flag. <laughs> just for people know. <laughs> Or just the writing crop and the pearl-handled revolvers. That would work, too, if you really want to go for the patent effect. I mean, we were also talking about your conversion, Antonio, because it's our favorite topic. But oh, I find it ironic here that you are the one converting to Judaism, and then you have a crucified guy on the U.S. dollar sign over there, right? Well, that, that's doubly ironic because that's actually from the Cuban propaganda office. That was part of the um, propaganda that they, would, that, that they would use Cuban artists for the third world. So that was the... Um, what was it called? Office for the Solidarity with the Peoples of Africa and Latin America and, and whatnot. And so this is a Christ figure crucified in the dollar, and it says foreign debt on it. I should, it should probably just say venture capital, to be honest. But I include it as a, as a snarky aside to VC meetings that uh, they're, they're the, yeah, that's the... Next, next to your Hamlet skull. Next to my Hamlet skull, correct. Where, where is your uh, big uh, horn thing? Ram horn. Yeah, by the way, that skull was a gift from my ex. Um, but um, the, the shofar... <laughs> The shofars are still in, in the apartment that I no longer occupy that I need to move out. I should, I should, put, I should bring it behind me. Yeah. Let's segue into a uh, conversation we were just having in the group chat. First, Catherine, welcome to Moment of Zen. Yeah, it's good to be here. <laughs> um, 
you're one of the reasons why we started the podcast. You're one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, collaborators. So finally, great to to have you on here. Big support. Uh, Collaborator has a very nefarious sound there. (laughs) Conspirator. I prefer super fan. I am a super fan of this group. Conspirator. Uh, And um, we were just talking in the group chat about uh, fatherhood and founders. Uh, Antonio, why don't you share your, your, your perspective and we'll kind of, this is totally not on the script, by the way, this was just, <laughs> this morning no, but, I, but I think we should get into it. Um, so it's, it's funny. I'm going to gauge, I'm going to engage something I rarely do, which is an act of, uh, autoerotic self-citation and, um, of the, of the many lines in chaos monkeys that are rarely, <laughs> rarely, rarely. I don't do it. I hate it. I think it's, I think it's super douchey. I refuse to even quote myself when I do it. I just say a writer said, you were like, so someone long ago said that was a <laughs> line from Chaos Monkeys that you Oh, quoted. yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's like the most cited line from Chaos Monkeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how I do it. I put it in quotes. Like, I, a person said, my Uber driver. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, one of the most, there's a number of lines that are kind of quoted from the book, but the, probably the most quoted one is the one that I cited, which is every ambitious man either wants to please their father or punch him right in the goddamn face, right? And I, I actually forget the context of the quote in the book, but the idea here is that here's my personal theory of founder psychology, um, which I, I obviously is not unique and not grounded in any empirical evidence whatsoever, of course, but is that um, the father figure in your standard uh, heteronormative uh, mother-father type uh, situation, of course, with that proviso, um, stands for conditional love, expectation, the outside world, rigidity, hierarchy. It also represents sort of the boss of the household, right? And in the case of an abusive father um, or uh, you know, uh, a non-optimal father, that's this constant source of, of aggravation that you sort of want to defeat them. And I think we were speculating this in the context of Elon, whose travails with his father, I think, are well-known at this point and very public, that there's something inside the founder that goes against the grain, that goes against the established order. And in some sense, that that is the father figure in their heads that, that they're going against. Um, Jung didn't actually say this, it's an apocryphal quote, but it is a good summary of his work, that um, unless you make the subconscious conscious, uh, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. It's not a direct quote, but that is basically the, the essence of his work. And I think in some dark essence of his being, Elon, when he's sitting there and like jerking around the journalists by removing their blue checks or giving it to them for whatever the case might be, in some sense, in some dark corner of his head, he's basically punching his father in the goddamn face. Well, it's not just Elon. I mean, so this is what I, I remember when I was like just going deep into to Wikipedia holds and I found out Larry Ellison had the same same sort of story that Jeff Bezos did as well. Like the, the Jeff Bezos, Elon, and Larry Ellison were all like, you know, Ellison was referred to as a bastard child. Like, I mean, they literally put that on the Wikipedia page, but they'd all been left by their fathers by the age of two or three, you know, like like disowned by their fathers, you know, Be- Bezos adopted by by his, you know, his name Bezos is actually his adoptive father. But like Bezos' story is incredible. His mother was a young, you know, teenage mother who was left by his, his birth father. And she used to take him to community college with her to class. And so, you know, he, he, he's actually spoken publicly about this. Actually, there was a, a conference, um, a DOD conference where he spoke maybe a couple years ago. And he talked about how his grandfather was actually like the figure that really loomed large in his life because that was like the, the stable sort of figure in his life. I, I mean, I, I, I think there's definitely something to this. And when you really get deep into like what drives people, what, what motivates people, what motivates people who are so serious and so just determined to just kind of, you know, put their put their worldview on the world, build something in the world. Oftentimes it comes from like a, a traumatic experience in the family, which for men is like the being disowned by your dad. Like there's something deep there. Um, and it's like too common across history, too common around great men. I mean, there's so many great men throughout history that sort of were either rejected by their father or felt, you know, felt like they were rejected by their tribe. 
and you just see that in founder experience. Now, now like tons of other fantastic founders that do not have that experience, it would be like, wow, that's like really weird. But uh, but like there is something to it that like your earliest experiences in your family might drive what's motivating you to to sort of conquer the world. Let me add someone to your list, Catherine. Steve Jobs, same boat. And in fact, both Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, interesting story. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal about it. Tracked down their biological fathers, found them where they were, very humble men. In the case of Steve Jobs, he was running a restaurant, I think, in Sacramento. In the case of Jeff Bezos, he was running a bicycle store in Texas somewhere. He he hired investigators. He hunted them down. They walked up to the store. They stared at their father and they did nothing and they walked away and they never tried to reach out to them again. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know Bezos did that. I thought, so I thought Bezos' story was, I thought, I thought it was a, a journalist who found the father and then said, do you want to connect with dad? And he was like, no, like, why, why would I, you know, and it, which is a whole other question of like, you know, yeah, these are, these are like very deep, uh, deep questions. But like, when you see that pattern in us through, through people, like there's, there's definitely something there that like, there's something deep, a deep fire driving people uh, that, that kind of goes back to the family, which is probably why I'm like so interested in the family in general. Like, I think it's something that's completely under discussed. We relegate it to Instagram, going back to the conversation. It's like the family's for Instagram, but put your baby pictures on Instagram for the women to look at. But it's like actually really important for like how we how we build things in society, which I know you all agree with. But. One, one thing I wanted to mention, because I always like taking credit for this for the Cuban mafia, since this is a Latinx show, is that uh, Jeff Bezos's adoptive father was a Cuban, actually, my father's generation, who came to the United States. Bezos is actually a Spanish name. It's actually, it's actually a historical Spanish name from Northern Castile. He's actually gone back to Spain and visited his Spanish town, supposedly. Um, but yeah, his adoptive father was a, was a, a Cuban uh, exile. Let's segue into, Catherine, your idea of, of seriousness. How do you define what is serious? And then we could look at some examples of, of people that may be serious, that may be surprising, or people that may, may not be serious in the way that we redefine it. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's one of these like, you know it when you see it sort of characteristics, but I've tried to put words to it. And I think like the the sort of short version of it is it's like this maniacal belief in something greater than yourself and it's all consuming. So like there's people on Twitter who think they're very serious about a cause or the current thing or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 like that's not seriousness. It's actually unseriousness because you haven't like architected your life around the thing that you care about. Like the number of people who put Ukrainian flags in their bios or whatever, who tweeting the current thing, like their life doesn't change. Like seriousness is, it, it's a maniacal focus on something that it doesn't matter what's happening around you. It's all consuming. It's like time stops. And we're just focused on this thing that, that it, it, it's an obsession. And I think the, the thing that most people miss about the serious people that, that I think we admire in society is that like, it's not just talking about a value. It's not just trying to espouse it. It's like, it's an action and it's an action that consumes daily life. And, you know, I, I think we see it a lot in startups, um, which is, you know, a, a kind of the, the example that we're most exposed to in tech, which is that people become obsessed with the thing, they start building for it, um, it consumes their life, it's, you know, a 10, 20, 30 year journey in many cases, Elon being a great example with Starship, it's like, it, it, people used to laugh at him when he said, we are going to be a multi-planetary species and we're going to Mars. Like that sounds absurd to anyone who is not all consumed, serious about a mission. And now we're looking at that and we're like 20 years on, like, okay, we're, we're going to Mars. But I think there's also like small scale seriousness. And this is very much un, uh, like under discussed. And I think like the, the thing that I'm most passionate about is people finding seriousness in mundane life. Because you can't tell everyone, okay, we're all going to be Elons. We're all going to build a, a rocket ship and go to Mars. Like, no, that, that's like a, a certain type of personality, a certain type of person 
who is, you know, born a genius and, and, and has, you know, ha- has able to recruit the right talent, that sort of thing. Like that's like a once in a, you know, a once in a century sort of person. Uh, but like everyone can be serious. And there's like daily example. I mean, I, one of my favorite examples is uh, if you look at like the homeschooling movement, like they're the perfect example of like a very serious movement that got made fun of for like 10, 20 years, like just a bunch of moms that were like, oh, I don't want to send my kid to public school. I want to teach my kid. And you know, when you think of every homeschooler we like grew up with, you know, we kind of thought they were weird. We kind of laughed at them. They were like the kids in the 4-H program, like milking cows and doing stuff, like trying to find ways to get socialization because they weren't in school. And now you look at what's happening in U.S. politics and like there's something like 10 states that are deciding to do um, education savings accounts, ESA programs, which will give money to parents so that they can opt out of school. Like Florida is like looking at this, a massive program. Arizona just did a universal ESA. Uh, Idaho has this. It's basically saying, hey, we, we recognize that a 19th century model of education isn't working um, and we're just going to give you money and we're going to let you figure out how you want to educate your child. That is like. 80s, 90s, like homeschooling, obsessive parent, you know, propaganda that became a reality um, that we all made fun of growing up. So to me, like, that's like a perfect example of like, you know, seriousness on a small scale that becomes a large scale. I think there's not enough seriousness in life. And like, we should respect people who demonstrate this kind of seriousness more than we do versus saying that they're weird and persecuting them, because often we just persecute them. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. So, so for you, it's less about tone and do they have memes and do they have a sense of humor? And do, do, they make, do they troll even? And more like, are they all in? Do they have skin in the game? Are they playing to win? And it's not, it's not even like, like that, that's one criticism I've gotten of this where it's like people, people take themselves too seriously in, in the modern world. And I'd actually say like Twitter is an example of that. Like the, the Twitter wars, again, not serious. Like, like sending a tweet is not a serious thing to do. Um, but I think the opposite of seriousness is irony. It's not humor. So like some of the most serious people, and like if you listen, like there was an amazing Joe Rogan episode um, with Louis C.K. Uh, uh, maybe like three months ago, and it was all about like the history of stand-up comedy. And like talk about two people who like, like take their craft seriously. Like they are yeah. serious, like serious about their profession, serious people, even though they're funny. Like they, you know, they would go back and watch like YouTube clips of like, you know, like very obscure you know, stand-up comics who I, who I don't know the names of, uh, and, and, and just like study, like the delivery, study the tone. There was like one, Eric, actually, you might remember this. It was like about like Jaws 4. Like, I don't oh, okay. Well, it, it, you should go back and listen to this episode because it's hilarious. <clears throat> but they had basically dissected like a 1980s stand-up performance about like why they keep making Jaws films. 
um, that this guy did on Johnny Carson. And you're like, okay, these are both very successful people, but like the, the amount of study that they have done on their craft is it shows the seriousness of how they, how, how they think about what they are doing. Um, so it's definitely worth a listen, but I think like one of the criticisms of seriousness is that we take ourselves too seriously and maybe we should just like be a little bit more go with the flow. And I think to me, that's like a anti-determinist meme that people tell you so that you'll waste your twenties and thirties, just kind of going with the flow and then be like, okay, what have I actually done with my life? You know, like disagreeable people are actually the people who make a difference. So yeah, I, I, I think comedy, comedy can be taken very seriously, whereas irony cannot. Irony is just deconstructing, um, deconstructing things that people care about. And we live in an irony-soaked age. There's an excess of irony, I would say. We should have less of it. it totally. It's funny that, that speaking of memes and speaking of uh, self-citation, this, this serious meme, one of the most viral pieces I had go viral on, on my, the pull request, my former Substack, was this thing about we are not a serious people, about the, the completely botched pullout from Afghanistan. And what Fashion stole from you. Well, I, well, I'm trying to figure it out. I, I, <laughs> I can't have coined this thing, right? Like, it had to have been a thing before me, right? I, I don't even know where I got it from, but it's a thing in secession now. It's like a thing. I see it now. Serious people is like a thing now. Who started that? I'm Who's... serious people. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. Again, memes travel fast. It's funny. On the seriousness topic, randomly over Shabbat, I was reading the autobiography of Lee Kuan Yew, speaking of serious people. And man, did that guy have a life. Talk about fucking going from nothing and trying to create a city state out of nothing. I didn't quite realize how like touch and go the early history of Singapore was and how unlikely it was to survive, uh, much less become what it became. Talk about a serious guy. Um, but it's funny, he just ran out of his own little house with a family and he just had this hell-bent obsession with making Singapore a city-state no matter what. I also learned, by the way, that the Israelis were involved in uh, um, advising the early Singapore armed forces. And, uh, they but almost they didn't eaten, eaten by Malaysia, right? Well, yeah, right. Well, they got eaten by Malaysia and then kicked out. There was some sort of, I, I don't understand the deep 1950s Malaysian politics. They basically got exiled, but it's clear that the Malaysian, which is majority Muslim would not have appreciated uh, the Jewish state advising the Singaporean military. So they actually gave the Israelis the codename of the Mexicans internally <laughs> so nobody would know that it was the Israelis advising the Singaporean military. But uh, yeah, it was uh, Lee Kuan Yew was a serious man. Put it that way. Catherine, I'm, I'm curious, um, given that you, you actually have lived in, in the world of software and now with American atomism, like you're, you're very much living in the world of atoms and to kind of borrow the, Peter Thiel, you know, we wanted flying cars and said we got 140 characters. As someone building in the world of software, where I like to think of myself as serious. I do think since moving to LA and actually getting exposed to more hardware founders, like we have you know, Mutual with Hadrian is an interesting company. But even recently, I, I was talking to the, the founder of a drone company, I think it's called Zipline. Mm -hmm. And he yeah. mentioned that they had flown, and I think this is a public statistic, I looked it up before we started, um, 40 million commercial autonomous miles with their drones, right? And most of that, I think, started in Ghana because they were delivering blood because he couldn't do it in the U.S. And they've been working on this company for almost a year. And Ghana is much, much easier to navigate than the U.S. Right. But 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 like life saving deliveries of, you know, blood and and, and across these rural hospitals and, and, and uh, but but 40 million commercial miles flown. And, and I think like if you look at like Amazon or something, it's like they're they're on the order of about a million. Right. And they've spent billions of dollars on their program. And and so you have this kind of upstart company that that actually has real experience and, and is now making, you know, I think they just got some big uh, they made some announcement in the U.S. that they're launching deliveries with Walmart and, and all this other kind of stuff. 
And, and, and so I was asking him, and, and one, you just can tell as this, this founder is talking about what they're doing, how serious he is in terms of like, no, I'm going to change the way deliveries work. And like, not a like, oh, change the world with, you know, an app. It's like, no, no, no. Like we, we're delivering real physical goods every day in, in real airspace and, and dealing with, you know, emergency landings and not killing people and all this other kind of stuff. And the thing, you know who he was inspired by? Elon with Tesla. Because he, he, he said, you can look at Waymo, where it's this kind of science experiment where they built like a fake town and they're doing all this autonomous driving. And he's like, I look at Tesla and they have 80 million supervised miles driven. And they're, they're out there actually just like, we're, we're going to try to really collide with the real world and figure it out as we go along in the same way that, that SpaceX is doing its iterative approach. And so I wonder, I, I'm curious, like, do you, do you find without trying to inflame the average hardware founder versus software founder you've interacted with has a level of seriousness difference? No, no, no. So I actually think that's a false dichotomy. And I think when, when Peter first talked about atoms and bits, it was, it was a real thing. It was a real phenomena, but now you look at like the most value, what are the most valuable company? Like the most valuable private company in the U S is SpaceX. So like there, there was sort of this, you know, when, when he, and I actually think it was like 2009 or 2010 where he started like really talking about the distinction. It's like, there was sort of this issue where we didn't have people building real physical things. But now, I mean, like, what is SpaceX? It's yes, it's a hardware company, but it's also a software company. You know, like the idea that these are not like every hardware company I've invested in has software at its core. And so the distinction between atoms and bits, yes, you build those things differently, but they're not at war with each other. And actually, this is this is one thing that I, I, I actually get uh, a little annoyed with, with with others in the ecosystem, like basically trying to create war between hardware and software. It's like, no, actually, if you're going to build real things in, in the 21st century, you need both. You need understanding of both. You need to respect for both. Understanding they are built differently, but like you can't say that you know one category of innovation is better than the other. Um, and I think oftentimes like tech goes to war with each other um, just because we are at a, in a war for talent, uh, obviously. But like we shouldn't be at war with each other. We're all builders. <laughs> like and and while there are different ways to to build software companies and maybe iteration looks very different and hardware maybe you only get a few bites at the apple because there are real capital requirements. There are you know, real physical world restraints on, on how you build. But the the idea that there's a difference between, you know, or, or that there's a difference in the nobility of building a crypto company versus building a pure SaaS company versus building a, a you know, a hardware company, like it's it's the same practice. Again, it's like, and, and you know, the great companies are serious. Um, and, and if you look at, you know, Clubhouse during its heyday or, or Zoom, it's like these things that, that mattered so much to us uh, during COVID, it's like, it was actually like the software companies that like kept us sane, like that kept society going. Yes, Amazon with logistics, yes, that mattered. But like Zoom was like the reason why we were able to all connect. And like, that's, you know, that's pure software. It's like- A, fr a friend of the show, Trey Stevens, had his recent post, Choose Good Quests. Yeah. Um, would you be probably more pluralistic than he would be as, deter as determining what's a good quest, as long as it's like a technology company that's serious about what they're doing? I'm like a big Trey stan. So yes. Yeah, yeah. of course. And I, think, and I think like, you know, I-, I I think he he is he's delivering a message from the vantage point of having built Andril, um, yeah. which I think is also you know in, in some ways and you know you know he's pretty open about this, but he's he's very religious. Um, he sees you know quests also have sort of a religious connotation with him, and I and I think I very much agree with sort of the spirit of what he's saying. I don't think you can, as an outsider to a person to a person's mind, say okay this is a good quest versus this is a bad quest. Like I think if you are doing the act of building. Um, that 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 in and of itself is a noble quest. And the reason I say that is more because I think there are way too many people 
in this country that will never have the courage to build a company, but they will build a family. They will build, you know, they will be pillars of their community. They will build something that sort of uh, creates like a, a, a better society or creates a fabric or, or helps people get through sort of kind of the modern malaise that we live in. Um, and it doesn't have to be SpaceX or Andrew. Uh, but I don't, but, but I, so I agree in spirit. I might disagree on, on the things he thinks are lame. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Do, do we think that most founders will have something like psychologically off? Like the people who are totally psychologically healthy, are, are they just less likely to be, to have the, the, the motivation to, you know, chew glass as Elon would put it? Yeah. I, so I love that you use the term off. Antonio actually might, uh, might understand what I'm talking about here. Like there's like this Southern saying or Florida saying like for a very long time growing up, like we never used neurodivergent or any of those, <laughs> like, you know, psychological terms. If someone was like a little off, we, we said like, oh, that person, you know, they're a little off. You know? It was like this all encapsulating Southern term for like disagreeableness. Like, you know, like, like it was, it was a euphemism that, that I still love using to describe uh, people who probably would have a different term in California. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the best founders are off and like, they're off in different ways. Like disagreeableness is like, you know, I, this is a word that like, didn't, you know, the, the five factor sort of tests you can take to see like where you are on the spectrum on some of these traits, like they, they have, you know, words coined by people in, in our circles, but in like, you know, the rest of the country, those people are just a little off. They're just a little hard to deal with. They don't get good performance reviews. Um, they, they march to their own drum to use like another sort of American saying, you know, like they're, they're not, they're not going to like fit into the box. And like, I think the biggest problem in our world is that people have that nature to them. And if they start excelling in elementary school or in high school, you put them into the gifted class where then they're expected to sit in their chair and they're expected to like answer questions in a certain way. And then they go to a school where they're like expected to not be difficult and to not be disagreeable. And then by the time they get to Silicon Valley, they have all these bad habits where they're using words that have no meaning. And they're, you know, they're, they're trying to conform to pass the test. And so like, I actually think one of the biggest challenges is finding those people who are naturally disagreeable and where that's been cultivated, where they have no problem coming into a meeting with their superiors and saying, you're wrong. And like, they're, I, I, I feel like if we had more of those people, we'd have more progress, but I'd love to hear Antonio's thoughts here. You know, I'm slightly more skeptical of capitalism in this group than most people, perhaps. And I think we've engineered an economy in which you basically have to be insane to do well. And that insanity is, is expressed as either, you know, being Matt Iglesias or Richard Hunter Mia on Twitter, or being the founder of a startup in which you become this absolute, complete, self-absorbed psychotic about a certain idea, right? And that, that's, that's the path to success. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very strange. It's very, um, it's very unhinged. I mean, it's why San Francisco is such a great petri dish for these people, because that's where they all end up. Uh, the the unhinged psychotics, right? Everything from you know Charles Manson to uh, Stuart Brand to you know whoever else got their starts <laughs> here, right? And but, but there's different degrees of self-absorption, right? Like so, like I mean, there's a different like the the people posting stuff on Instagram are also self-absorbed. I mean, this is not like a only the extreme outliers go to San Francisco and then they're self-absorbed with you know at least like the self-absorption that you're talking about and people who are successful, they're they're self-absorbed with their mission. And yes, maybe they're like, like maybe they are the messiah of their mission as well. And maybe we see that as self-absorption. I'm sure, like you know, that's you know one of the knocks on on sort of the kind of great man theory of of, of founderdom. But like, you know, the flip side of that is that like you have people that are just on Twitter, like self-absorbed with how many likes they have and like their own little world, thinking that they're like you know traumas from childhood are worth like airing to people, and that's what makes them whole. 
And like, that's a different type of self-absorption, which doesn't build anything good for society. So you know, we, we might all be like completely self-absorbed at this point. Like this is just maybe like human nature in the 21st century, but like some of us are building things that are real. And like, those are the people I want to, you know, support, work with. And there's other people who are just kind of self-absorbed with things that are really mundane and like kind of boring and not helpful and, and really just focused on themselves. So, so the first thing you do when you invest in a founder who's psychologically off is you help them heal their trauma, right? That, that's I'm, not what saying, I'm not saying that's like, that's like everyone. That's what you focus on. No, I'm that's, just kidding. Catherine Boyle, I only invest in psychologically broken people. <laughs> no, no, of course not. I mean, Catherine obviously convinces them that the way out of their trauma is through an IPO. And that's the only way out. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Come on, yeah. Catherine. Catherine, fess up. You're a VC for God's sake. Liquidity fixes everything. <laughs> Liquidity fixes everything. Exactly. <laughs> You'll finally defeat your father when you ring the bell on the NASDAQ. That's, that's when you've tried. <laughs> Gosh, that's not, but, that's not good. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. You know the Apple uh, ad campaign, the one that everyone think different? Here's the crazy ones or whatever. Imagine if that ad ran today. Like how immediately they would be accused of like all of this stuff for like the words that they're using, like the people that they selected, like... It is interesting. If Jobs was around today, would he be more like Jack Dorsey or would he be more like uh, Elon um, in terms of the sort of political dispositions or Elon? I mean, I think that's the ultimate Rorschach test is people all look at Jobs and he died in 2011. So he didn't even get any of this. And so you, you can you can put him into your camp as being the shining example. On, on the downside, I'd probably still be employed at Apple if that were true, by the way. But... <laughs> Fail. Or, or maybe they never would have gotten into ads because he personally doesn't like them. Well, that's that's, let's say that's also very possible. Yeah, the counterfactual is hard to <laughs> it's hard to ponder. Dude, I thought you were going to start in the whole Saturn. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been waiting. I've, I'm, that's what I'm, the whole like, I'm ready thing to go. Was. I thought that was the lead up. Okay, let, let's get into it, Dan. Okay, so in the group chat. Um, some of us are maybe more SpaceX uh, fans, for full disclosure. My wife used to work at SpaceX. Um, I'm a huge SpaceX stan. I, I, you know, our family is a shareholder at this point. Um, but the coverage of the media, like the media coverage of this rocket exploding, where it's just like rocket go boom, rather than they said, all we want to do is get above the launch pad. And that's a success. Not a, let alone like hitting max Q and all these other technical milestones, which I'm not expecting the media to to cover because that's not the average person's interest. But if you just look, and and the Wall Street Journal I think was particularly pernicious, it was it, it, it just basically all all it was was focused on the explosion, like what happens next? Elon's rocket exploded, and it's just so uh, indicative of this this tribal thing now that we have is elon bad so therefore everything that elon does we are going to cover in the most negative way and maybe that's too cynical or i'm i'm assuming that there's a kind of a coordinated effort that doesn't exist but if you have any semblance of intellectual honesty the the recent launch is a massive success for for humanity and had it blown up on the launch pad there was actually a pretty good tweet on this that, that 30 seconds that was kind of on the launch pad right there, if, if it had blown up the launch pad and it, we have been two years of an FAA, NASA investigation to make sure safety is there, we might we may never be going to Mars. And now now that we've gotten to that point and we're now moving on to Booster 9 and the next set of uh, starships, like we just forked the the path of the species. And, and Antonio, uh, I don't know, what, what, what was your take? Uh, so, you know, it, it's never recommended to get into a fight over a thing with someone who cares about it way more than you do. Cause then it's just like, it's like, 
getting into a fight with a grizzly bear over a salmon. And it's like, you know, this is just a bad idea, right? You're just going to get mauled, even if you do get the salmon somehow miraculously. But so I, I, I don't know how I wandered into this because I don't, obviously don't follow it nearly as much as, as Dan or anybody else here does. But I was just commenting on the optics of a rocket exploding are not good. And that from the messaging perspective, if I was his PMM, I would have <laughs> probably gotten ahead of that a little bit and set expectations around that happening. And then two, if you go back to like the Saturn program, the Apollo program, the standards around what was considered failure and the context of rockets blowing up was somewhat different. And the last thing I'm going to say before every Elon fanboy eviscerates me is that if, if we are, and this is more interesting in my opinion, if we are in a world in which it's more of a software development process in which it's, you know, move fast and break things. I actually have a Facebook poster in the office in which you iterate quickly, things blow up. And that's a learning process and that's fine. It actually helps you get to the goal faster. We're just using that in the physical space, then fine. Then, then we're in a new world. But it just seems like the expectation is different than it was around, say, the Apollo program. You know, when we were, when we were debating it in the group chat, it, it's not about optics to the public as much. It's more about just like, it's really, really hard to build things as an apparatus of state government versus like outside and selling directly to the government once things are working. And I think that ultimately is like the thing that SpaceX proved. Like SpaceX is the first company to do this exceptionally well, raise venture capital, build really fast, like blow up a couple rockets, have everyone mock you, have everyone make fun of you, have, you know, Gene Cernan and Neil Armstrong testify before Congress that it's never going to work. And then it works. And now the government is, you know, is, is your, is your customer. Like, like, like that actually, I think is the thing that, that, you know, they, they've created this new category of American dynamism. They've paved the way for Palantir and Anduril and all of the companies that are coming after so it is just a different way of building and it's a faster way of building. So I don't, I, I mean, I, I think in some ways it's like a, a bad comparison to look at, okay, how do we use to build rockets when the government was doing it uh, during the Cold War and how do we build them now? Like I, I think in some ways they're, they're, they're not only separate vehicles, they're just separate philosophies as well. Can, can I give Antonio some credit though, in terms of points? So I, I think the first is, look, Saturn never had an explosion, 13 launches, all perfect. And one Soviet never made it. We got to the moon first. I would argue that that's because Werner von Braun had experience with the V2 rockets while he was working for the Nazis. And then the Redstone missile program and Jupiter program, where I think they had done 50 successful launches with the Redstone missiles uh, to space before they started working on Saturn. So he had a lot of experience blowing things up first before before working on the thing. And, and to his credit, I think he, and I'm not an expert here, but my, my understanding is he was extremely focused on safety. And, and that's actually one of the reasons we didn't get, uh, you know, a man, man to space before before the Soviets. So, so there's that thing. But I, I think that the, the thing that SpaceX also has achieved, that is just, it, it is a, as a, like a technologist, the thing that I am so excited about is the step function change in, in cost to bring a given kilogram to orbit. And that, that because of the reusability of first Falcon and now you know, as we progress towards Starship, like that, that is just such a fundamental change to how our, our relationship with space and, and getting stuff up to space. And and like the reusability of Starship is just going to be extraordinary, right? Like they're going to be building these things on like a crazy pace. And instead of shooting them up and having them blow up every time, it, it's just like, they're going to come back down, reload the cargo ship and, and, and bring stuff up. And so like, there's a company, um, you know, a, a very online person, friend of the pod, I think, uh, Delian is a co-founder of a company, Varda, that if you ask him, it's it's SpaceX 
just like you know AWS or something, which dramatically reduced the cost of cloud, and, and now you can enable a whole bunch of new things. SpaceX is is a bus that can bring stuff to space, and so the whole company thesis around Varda is they can get a ride on a SpaceX rocket for way cheaper than what was possible before. And now they can go build factories in space and, and do reentry and all this other kind of really hard stuff because of this enabling technology. And so I think that is where I don't think SpaceX gets enough credit because of Elon's antics on Twitter and, and Elon bad is that it, it is changed the game in terms of like what you can actually now go do in space. And then once Starship happens, that's, I think, another order of magnitude increase. Right. And, and, and Antonio, you're, you're a happy customer of Starlink. Like that's only enabled by the fact that SpaceX does 80% of, of cargo going to space compared to the entire rest of the world's governments and actually has a profitable, you know, revenue sustaining business from that today. They're able to kind of tag on this Starlink thing, which is only going to improve with Starship. It's like the Bell Labs model all over again. But Bell Labs that actually like commercialize the stuff rather than have other people benefit, right? One wonders if you could have Elon without the the antics, or if you could have Balaji or Fred Balaji without the kind of taking it to to the extreme, or if that's just like the package that is you know they are who they are and just let them be them and hope that they just recover as opposed to kind of refine. Part and parcel, people are who they are. And they're talented in many ways and they have their flaws, but I, I think everyone does, right? I think it's interesting because when 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 people try to kind of overfit these person. Like one of the problems I think in tech is we have a hard time explaining that we are a creative industry. And so people understand this about artists. They understand it about writers. You know, it's like if you if you talk to the press and you say, well, look at all of the great writers throughout history. Like, look at how crazy they were or look at how off, off they were. Um, people understand that. But because of, oh, well, you're a corporation. Like in many cases, you run a public corporation, like like because of the word business, people think that you have to wear a suit or that like these people are are much more like the McKinsey types or the people who go to business school. And it's like, actually, no, tech is not that tech is much more aligned with the creative industries, with creative classes, with artists, writers, people who, you know, uh, it, there's sort of an understanding that you're, you're managing a creative person um, or you're working with creative people. And, and that should be celebrated. And I think that's also one of the things that's a disconnect for people who are on the outside of tech is that they just don't understand that actually like a lot of the characters in this industry are much more like the people they would interact with or see who are making films, writing music, you know, writing books. And, and, and actually like that, that, that's their power. And so by saying like, actually, no, don't say that word or don't, don't put out that song because that song is going to be offensive. Like, you would never say that to Beyonce. Or actually, now we do say that to Beyonce. So <laughs> never mind. The, the one thing I would I would edit a little bit on that is if you're a founder and you started the company, you are much more aligned with the creative class. I think yes. the professional managerial class, like what 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 is Google now? It's just a bunch of middle management, right? Like they 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 invented all this technology, Bell Labs, and then they can't get out of their own way to do it. Whereas you take something like OpenAI. There's an aggressiveness and a creativeness that that happens with the the you know spunky startup, and I think you can maintain that for much longer as the company scales, as long as you continue to have the founder have control and be able to make those decisions. The moment you swap it in for professional managers, I mean, look at once great companies like Intel, like, <laughs> like in, Intel does not have any of that kind of creativity. Where at one point it it, it did right, 
Yeah, and that's another one of the biggest changes I think that's happened in not only venture capital but also just in tech, realizing the importance of the fact. Like, like yes, that's that's Elon, Steve Jobs have proven that, but it's like it, that has gone all the way down. Um, any successful company where now I think like the vast majority, like there used to be, okay, you swap the CEO in a few years because like you need to professionalize the company. Like that is not the case anymore. And so, you know, in the last ten years, I think that's also something the media has had to grapple with, which is like. Actually, like you, you used to see these people get removed as as they started causing trouble or causing issues with with uh, with scale, and and now actually no, like it's the key to the success of a company is making sure that the creativity and that the movement and that the momentum stays, and that is by keeping the founder. Um, and so I yeah, that's another thing where I think like maybe you know maybe the the people who are reacting to tech on the outside just haven't come to terms with the fact that like this is this is part of the reason why they become successful. And that's where your definition of seriousness um, is, is the opposite from some others where someone like, let's take Uber, like Travis may have had some antics, quote unquote, but he was, he was playing to win in a way that a more formal Dara, just to use a stereotype, you know, is, is much more proper and prim, but is, is not willing to bet the, the company in the same way, perhaps, because it just doesn't have the same stake or credibility or that kind of thing. It also goes back to, but there's another angle to this, which goes back to the Steve Jobs question of where would he be today? Where you know, Steve Jobs is also obviously extremely eccentric. Um, Elon, you know, obviously extremely eccentric. But Elon in 2011 was perhaps closer to Jobs than like he wasn't like at the center of a culture war. <laughs> um, like you could be eccentric, but also be above the fray. And maybe today, all great men like you you can't actually. You, you have to be like. It, it seems that. Do, do you agree with that? And that's why the question of like, you know, would Jobs be? right there with him? Or would he be more removed trying to maintain above the fray, but also like irrelevant um, in the way that Jack Dorsey has, has become to some degree? Yeah, I mean, this might this might be sort of, I mean, I don't personally know Elon. So I don't like I'm projecting probably what I've what I've heard and what I've read. And but like, if you are a serious person, and you see free, you see Twitter as the center of the free speech debate for society, and not just like American society, but for like all of global society, like, you know, like, then in some ways it's like, it becomes a question of, okay, like, am I going to insert myself in the culture war? How, how can I not? Especially if you believe in the ideals of free speech. Whereas I think like, you know, if we're looking at like 10, 20, 30 years ago, like you couldn't say a company was at the center of that. I actually think that's like sort of the, maybe the biggest change is just how important technology has become in the global discourse. I mean, it's like, when you think of Twitter, Twitter is a very important it was important in 2011 with the Arab Spring. I mean, it's like, it is a very important entity um, that like, you know, you couldn't 30, 40 years ago say this one company is is having an impact on every country, on every, every you know, nation state's politics. Like, I, I, I don't know. So, I mean, in some ways, I think if you are a serious person and if you believe in free speech, in some ways, it would be very difficult for him to ignore it. Like, this is, this is the, the, the flying cars quote, I actually, to me, like, to me, that's like the most, wrong like that's turned out to be exceptionally wrong because those 140 characters like that is like that is the battleground like 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 that like twitter dumbest seemed like the dumbest product when it came out like what did i eat for lunch it is now like the battleground in every country and and all of western civilization of what what ideas are becoming memes and like what what is being you know pushed to the to the rest of the world so like part of me thinks like if you actually believe that if you're serious about that um then you kind of have to insert yourself into the debate yeah, you either you either have forty four billion dollars to be able to buy Twitter, or you don't, and you try to start a protocol. To replace it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's the other angle. Well, the Elon saga has also brought up another question, which is 
is is it serious to stick to your principles even if that means you lose you're losing or is it serious to like defend your tribe no matter what um and just like fight for your tribe and whatever you have to do for for your tribe to win um because we've seen him go back on some of the free speech stuff when he needed to because the reality of you know um the situation whatever that was at this certain time i want to hear antonio's thoughts here um uh, yeah i mean he uh, i mean it's power versus principle and like are there principles left right and i don't know i you know i'm not such a watcher of the whole twitter free speech thing i've been tagged in on various threads like where, where are your comments right now I, I don't have a strong view on it i mean and then the reality is that the counter argument is like well yeah sure it's his it's it's ruled by diktat but at least it's open elon diktat versus some closed committee that we don't understand and so in some sense it's preferable which is a view i guess in some sense, you need a certain religious fervor around the American civil religion and, and, and free speech and the Bill of Rights have to become the new Ten Commandments for you to actually believe in free speech. I think most people actually don't want free speech. Nobody actually wants to give their enemies a microphone. They never do. It's only really the most fervent belief in these lapidary principles handed down from, from God to Moses or God to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson that we can ever possibly believe in free speech. And I think that that level of fervent devotion just doesn't exist anymore among any of us. So... I don't know. I'm not surprised that it went the way that it did. So so one thing I want to challenge a little bit is like, did he change his position on free speech? I, I think on the on the technicality, like, yes, like blocking links to Mastodon or Substack is is violating people's free speech. But if you were to say the exact same thing, like you were saying on your link on Substack on Twitter, they weren't blocking those tweets. So so from the speech angle, that he he was allowing speech, right? And, and look, I'm I'm literally competing with the guy, so it's it's like I'm I'm not trying to to stand as much as like I I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. So yes, like telling people you can't put a link, and and if you define a link as speech, therefore you know you you violated free speech. But from a I have said something important, but I want to use Twitter's infrastructure and distribution to then put it to some other platform. Like ignore the specific one. There's a reasonable argument to say, well, why don't you just do it here? I, I increased the character limit, right? But pr prior to Twitter, it, you know, not having it, you, you would say, oh, I want to write something longer and more nuanced. Right. We have that now available here. And I think there is precedent here with, you know, Instagram, although they just recently added five link technology after, uh, you know, almost a decade. Um, but but Instagram traditionally just never let you put any links, right? Like the only you get one link in the bio, like you created a whole sub industry of people. And so, so I, I do think there's a little bit of nuance there. I, I personally think it's a stupid policy. Like Twitter is about distribution. Like making it the best place for distribution is going to grow Twitter rather than trying to kind of create a walled garden approach. That, that's my own personal opinion. But I think it's a reasonable approach to say, if you want the benefits of Twitter, put your speech here, right? Like I, from, from, from his perspective, it, I don't think it's worked well. So, so from in, in practice, whether or not we think it's a good idea or not, like it, I think that the revealed preference here is that Kind of it, it pissed off a lot of people who are creating that interesting upstream content. They are creating the battleground that makes Twitter engaging, and so I think he's he's gonna have to iterate, like uh, just like he's blowing up rockets. Uh, he's gonna have to figure out like, okay, what keeps the the right group of blue checks happy? Because the the right group of blue checks is what actually brings people to Twitter, right? It, it's not so you hang out with your friends. It's you see the the blood sport of the arena, and you're able to share it in your group chats. And when we were having this discussion, I sent uh, a screenshot of Chesterton's orthodoxy, which basically says that it's like a modern, it's like a modern concept to care so much about consistency and hypocrisy and trying to be consistent versus trying to be truthful. 
And he makes it really, I, I'm not going to do it justice. It's like the first 10 pages of orthodoxy. Everyone should read it. It's free. But like, it, it, it basically goes into like, modern men care a lot about, you know, logical dynamics, like trying to be consistent. Whereas like the common man cares about, am I close to the truth? They're much more mystical. Like the, the mysticism is a thing in the common man's, you know, like they, they can still believe in a God. Whereas like a modern man can't believe in a God, like they can't hold two competing ideas at once in their head. And so in some ways, I feel like that's a really good example of it where like on the outside, again, if we take that Elon is serious on the outside, it's like, well, why is he acting in a certain way? He's not being logically consistent. Um, but like, actually, if you believe that he's trying to get closer to the truth, um, that some of the decisions that he makes um, are, are very much him not being consistent, but trying to get closer to the truth of the thing that he cares the most about. And as you see with Elon, and this is actually, I think, the lesson of Elon that, that I've taken for myself that more people should take is if you realize you've made a wrong decision, you can backtrack on most of them. And I think that Elon does that better than anyone else, even though that's often attributed to Bezos as the one-way do door, two-way door sort of phenomena. Like Elon will make a decision so fast that is so reckless. And then within the next day, he has completely gone back on it and he's moved on to the next thing. And if all of us made 10 decisions a day that were wrong and three of them ended up being right, um, and then we backtracked on the other ones, we would be so much better off in terms of where we would where we would be taking our companies, where we would be taking our careers, where we would be taking our families. So I think that's the big lesson of Elon is that like he's not consistent. Sometimes he makes the wrong decisions, but then he goes back and, and, and reverses the things that aren't working. And like that, that is like that is a gift. That is like something that if we could train more people to be like that, I think we, we'd, we'd have you know a lot more success in terms of how we're building companies and, and countries. Speed of decision making is an advantage that startups have. And if I look at my own personal failings in any type of thing in business, it's always usually around, I did not make a decision fast enough and then course correct fast enough from said decision, right? It's, it's the lingering analysis paralysis, which obviously takes over at these like PMC dominated companies, right? Like everything is process, like no, no ability to just kind of make the decision, iterate from there. The idea that you have to be perfectly consistent is like indicative of some like hall monitor culture or there's somehow some referee that the referee doesn't exist. Like doesn't like, there's no one who's like, oh, nope, like you said this and this is wrong. And now we're one point for you. Like, no, it, it, like just keep moving on. Are, are you suggesting that journalists aren't neutral arbiters re referees? Well, th that's the best part is they think that somehow by, by virtue of whatever, I don't know, they used to have blue checks from their organizations now that those organizations don't pay. So I actually don't know who's a journalist at this point. But I, I think that they somehow thought that their profession got deemed the referees of society. When the reality is like, no, you're not like you're just another player in the arena. I like how Eric, you 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 resurrected my old tweet from with a Christmas uh, story meme. That I, I, it, whenever one of my old meet, when old tweets get discovered, this is the one where I've posted like technologists realizing that like legacy, you know, media engagement doesn't matter. Only Twitter engagement matters. And it's like the scene where he beats up the bully or whatever. The Christmas story, of course, is the best movie ever made, but um, aside from The Godfather. But can we talk about the blue check thing? Because another thing that's been resurrected in mind back when the original blue check controversy came out, and it's funny, they were quoting it in kind of a stupid way. So I had to react. Um, but, um, the, the original plan was actually to charge for the blue check, was not 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 making an opt-inable thing. It would still be an elitist mark, but at least they had to pay for it, right? And the idea being, oh, they'd never pay for this mark. Of course, if it remained an elitist mark, it would be. I think the problem, in my opinion, was that he opened it up to anybody, and then he tried charging for it, in which case it just completely changes the incentives. 
And then he just he restored the blue check in the form of the gold of the gold check, which is its own bestowed thing, which you couldn't buy. So anyhow, yeah, I don't. I'm curious. No, you 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 can buy the gold check. That's a thousand dollars a month. Oh, you can buy the gold check, really? Yeah, yeah, you can get a spindle gold check, and then you can have your your blue check for subscriber, and then a spindle icon next to your name to show that you're affiliated with an organization. It's also been added, by the way, to the UI on web, and it the verified organizations is so long that it's just dot, 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 and there is no version where you pull the browser out. So it was just shoved in there to say, buy this thing for a thousand bucks if you want it. Am I the only like blue check on this, on this uh, podcast? No, I'm, we pay I'm for blue it. check. Yeah, don't I blue guess check. I thought you had a you had a blue check before. No, no, no. I, I didn't. I, I was a I was a peasant before. Now, now I can buy my way into this club. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a blue check. I by the way, I hate all these paroles that are coming into and buying blue checks. I got my blue check the old fashioned meritocratic way, which is bitching Asking to Yish- <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, bitching to Yishang Wang about it, who wrote an email to Jack, who gave it to me in a nepotistic fashion, as as God dictates. That's how blue check <laughs> should be doled out. And um, once it seemed as if, oh my God, uh, you know, premium economy was going to invade first class, I paid for it because I assumed it was going to get revoked. And so I just paid. And now I'm like a paid blue check, even though I have to say I originally did not pay for it. I got it the old fashioned way. I, I had my legacy blue check too. And it was it was a different way. It was they, they gave every Washington Post reporter a blue check, even if they didn't use Twitter. And I think at the time I had like 50 followers. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> it, was, it was a big deal. Yeah, they, I'm, I'm the, uh, you know, the Latino that they gave a little bump now that, you know, I can get a blue check to be in the same group as you guys. <laughs> Dan, blue checks on for, on, on Forecaster when? Uh, we have to kind of think about it. I think on a decentralized protocol, you have different forms of verification. I don't think you can have a centrally administered one. D- Dan, you had one commentary that you're a fan of Substack, but you, you felt that maybe one of their moves wasn't as serious as it should should have been, or you, were, you weren't a believer yeah, in it? Yeah, and, and look, let me be really clear up front. I think Substack is a fantastic company and yeah. product, like period. Like I, I think that if there's one company that actually is consistent on a free speech platform, it's been Substack. Like, um, and I think they've done a fantastic job of getting people, I hate ter- this term, like, but but actually people on both sides, right? Matty Iglesias and Noah Smith are on the same platform as Curtis Yarvin and Richard Hanna-Ania. So, so like, I think they, they are doing a phenomenal job building frankly, an upstream intellectual culture from Twitter, right? Like what is on Substack becomes the, the blood sport of what ends up on Twitter, right? That said, I think with Elon's set of moves there, and maybe this was always the case. So, you know, I have no inside knowledge. Um, they are now trying to build a Twitter competitor that is not built on a protocol, right? And, and I think one thing to attribute the success of why Substack is so important. And, and one reason I always use it as an example of a company that is building in what I think the future is going to be is Substack is built on top of email, which is a credibly neutral permissionless protocol from the early days of the internet. And when I have a subscriber on my Substack and I don't want to use Substack anymore, I can migrate that subscriber list to whatever new tool, whether that's self-hosted or a competing pro- platform on email, and I can have uninterrupted access to to my subscribers. That relationship is a kind of opt-in of the subscriber with me. That's it. When you start building things in a proprietary manner, like A, I just think in 2023, it's gonna be very, very difficult to rebuild Twitter in a centralized way. So like anyone who's trying to build it centralized, just don't even bother spending time on that in in my uh, view. And then the second is, if I start to now get locked into Substack's version of Twitter, 
you you've removed that like core check on what I think makes them a great company is they had to earn their customer, you know, their their writer trust every single day in their actions versus when they all of a sudden have some proprietary distribution and algorithm, let's assume it works out. They can get as capricious as, as they want. And maybe maybe the current founders are no longer there and, and you have some PMC group running uh, Substack and, and they decide what speech is and versus not. And so I think like th- this is something that we had to deal with at Coinbase, right? And, and so like this is deeply rooted in, in my belief system now on how to build products is Coinbase is built on top of Bitcoin, Ethereum, these open permissionless blockchains. When you want to leave Coinbase with your with your Bitcoin or ETH, Coinbase doesn't say, oh, sorry, you got to sell it, move the dollars back, and then and then go figure it out somewhere else. You can just withdraw those assets to a, a wallet you control or a competitor. And 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 when Coinbase doesn't want to do business with you, you still can move those assets away. And so so I, I think that is the the one critique I have of this this product. And maybe maybe they do have plans. Maybe they end up running it as an activity pub Mastodon. Maybe they run it in in the AT protocol, which is the Blue Sky thing, which Jack doesn't seem as interested in these days, even though it's a Jack Dorsey backed protocol. And then uh, maybe it's Farcaster or something equivalent. So, so, so I, I'm optimistic that a company that's been built on top of these credibly neutral permissionless protocols like email will see the light at some point. But, but that that's my my critique of Substack notes or whatever it's called. So you're saying Farcaster is building a Substack competitor? Is that what you're saying, Dan? No, no. <laughs> we, we already have a, we have a client. We have like multiple like a you know, web client, mobile client, and a protocol. We, we got more than we on our plate. No, and, and I, again, like, I think just like every company we've talked about, I think we're investors in, like I should probably put out a disclaimer out there, but on Substack, I, so I'm huge Substack fan, San, as you guys know. Um, and I think like the thing I was thinking about, okay, like when we look back on what Substack did for society, say like 50 years from now, for a very long time, we only had one dominant narrative and we had an extremely like Count, we had an extreme counter narrative that you could get from talk radio, that you could get from other sources, but it was never consolidated and it was never deemed established in any way. And so what I actually think media culture used to be worse in this country. And Antonio, you've written a lot about this. Like it used to be worse where it was like you either listen to the New York Times or you listen to Rush Limbaugh. And that was your only choices. And it was actually like, I, I would say even more polarized. It was like you were either part of this like ditto head community or you were like obsessively you know, focused on the New York Times. And Substack kind of created the in-between where you can have a discourse, you can have all of these competing sorts of ideologies, competing you know, views of, of what the dominant narrative is. And it gave sort of, a, I would say, almost like a middle counter to those sorts of, of narratives that like, I don't think we had before. Like before Substack existed, you had bloggers, but you didn't have like a centralized place you could go to get sort of a, a critique on the dominant narrative that felt as though you were actually reading something that that people had put time into. Twitter doesn't do that. You know, Twitter, you know, for until very recently, it was 140 characters, 280 characters. Like you couldn't actually write long form on Twitter in the way that you could do it in, in Substack. And so in some ways, I feel like the creation of sort of this, you know, and, and, and Antonio, you, you wrote on the platform as a professional writer for a while, so you know this. It sort of created this sort of other class of anti-establishment, but established sort of thinkers that could put out their, their media in a way that they couldn't do that before 2017. So I think we kind of assumed that this existed five years ago. It really didn't. Like, it, it really was you were either so alternative that you didn't have sort of the stamp of approval, um, or you were a New York Times or Wall Street Journal writer. Yeah, I mean, it, Substack is basically the, the pamphleteer's printing press in a way. 
and like most successful products, right? There was like a singleton example of it. Andrew Sullivan used to charge for um, whatever his his blog used to be called, right? And it was like the first example, the Daily Dish, right? And he charged like five bucks a pop and like, that's it. And I don't know what, what the back end was, but literally pay me five bucks and you read me. Otherwise, no, go away. And the Substack guy has just turned that into a product. Like, like well, when people like, yeah, he, yeah, he made money off of it, but it wasn't like, I mean, his star has risen because of who he now associates with. In some ways, I feel like Substack created sort of the modern guild culture where like it was really difficult for one-offs to exist and, and do their own thing. And it's not even just like from a technological perspective, it was just seen as you were doing this weird thing. But now if you're part of like a Substack community, you have a cachet that like did not exist five years ago. And I think like that is something we'll look back on and like, okay, like there, there was, you know, there's sort of this modern intelligentsia that could not have existed on their own, but found the guild, found sort of the, the group of people they could do that with. And, and now it's, it's, you know, now it's this sort of dominant platform that operates as the counter narrative to the, the established media. It wasn't there in 2014 when I was at the Washington Post. Like there was no alternative, not even from like a business perspective, but there was no sort of like movement alternative you could join to feel like you were doing something cool. And, and they sort of created that coolness. The success is captured in the fact that people don't refer to it as a newsletter. They refer to it as a Substack, right? Like it, the, 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 it's a like Google it, Xerox, like the, the brand is now associated with a Substack, which means I am running a credible independent newsletter that I can make money from. Whereas prior to that, it was kind of cranks with a, with a blog, like, or, or if you told someone, oh, I have a newsletter, it's like, okay, cool. Like, do you send cat photos or something? Like Substack, I think has created a serious culture around, hey, there's a credible option. And we, I mean, we even saw some of the people, you know, I, I think are crazy online, jump over to Substack and then kind of realize, okay, being an entrepreneur and having my subscriber number go up every week, like that's hard. So I'm going to go back to the Atlantic or whatever, you know, traditional media outlet that's like trying to rebrand as a collection of Substacks. Charles Wardell. Like, yeah, Jesus, like whatever. You know, <laughs> stay in Montana, get off Twitter, like stop talking about blue checks. But Basically, I, I just worry that it's it's veering too much to becoming its own new institution, and and I and I think they really believe in free speech, so that I I, I trust the founders are serious people and they're going to figure it out. But I that anything that starts to get centralized with Substack just starts to get my spidey sense of like this is going to get captured at some point. Conquest second law, like you know. Whereas the beauty of Substack today is it is a an enabling tool for all of these independent people to basically build this like counter guild intellectual guild. And and I always just worry about anything that starts to capture to a, to a platform. Well, no, and, and that, that's also another question is like, you know, the, the whole sort of cycle of innovation is sort of this destruction and creation of new institutions. And that's what we're all a part of. But, you know, for, for a while, these institutions, it would take 10, 20, 30 years for them to get to this highly managed, centralized sort of needing to be destroyed again. And now maybe, you know, like the, the question is, and I, I don't think this is the case with Substack, but I, I think maybe the question is how quickly are these institutions formed? How quickly do they become dominant? And then how quickly do they get disrupted? And like, maybe that is the case like now, especially when, you know, we haven't even gotten into AI and like, you know, how quickly you can build, how quickly you can grow and scale and how quickly perhaps things can be captured and need to be created anew once again. Like maybe it's not 10, 20, 30 year journeys going forward. Maybe it's, you know, six months to a year for all of these new companies that are being formed today. Well, I was told on a very popular business podcast that all you need is one developer and chat GPT and you can build Stripe. <laughs> Catherine, you know, I'd love to know if you're going to be uh, Secretary of Commerce under the DeSantis administration or what. That'd be kind of interesting. <laughs> is, that, is that a hot topic? Can we not go into that? 
the um is this the the final sort of debate we're going to have on like Miami versus San Francisco? <laughs> should, we, should we get into Florida? Should we get into the future of Florida? We haven't talked about that. Is Miami a zero interest rate phenomenon? No. <laughs> well, who said that wasn't anyone on this chat? That was Shriram. That. that was Shriram. <laughs> Well, I don't think he's ever even been to Miami, but do they have sneakers in Miami? <laughs> Talk about why you're still excited about Miami and Florida more, more broadly, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I, you guys know this. I mean, I I've been like very public about Florida being the future I, from in a federalist country, and so what excites me most, and I think I have a little bit of a different take on like why Florida is exciting versus like why Miami is exciting. Like, I'm excited about Miami total Miami fan. But I think Florida is actually going to be, you know, an even bigger winner because the kind of hotbed of federalism that was created by COVID, I don't think is going away. And we're even seeing this, like the number of people that have moved to Florida in different communities, like it's not just a tech thing. It's like people moving to Florida because they're excited about how people are educating their kids here. They're excited about, you know, get, getting getting larger homes in the middle of nowhere because there's a lot of land. You can build things faster. Like you, you see people, at least, you know, I moved here over two years ago now and there's people from all over the country. They all have a different reason for being here. And like the kind of unifying theory of why I think they're coming is because Florida feels like the country felt like 20 years ago. It feels like people are not always talking about politics. Uh, you can, you know, you can build sort of a normal a normal sort of quiet life for yourself. Uh, and that's hilarious to say as like a former, like I grew up in Florida, like Florida was always sort of like a wild, weird place. Antonio grew up in Miami. It never had like, never had the reputation for being normal. And like the fact that like Florida is now sort of seen as like, oh, well, like maybe it's like a normal place. Um, like I, I, I feel like that is why a lot of people are moving here and why it's exciting. And, you know, there's this like great episode of Mad Men where Don Draper goes out to California and he has this great line where he's like, I was just in California. I was just in Los Angeles. Everything's new and it's clean and you can like build. Like he doesn't say build, but it's like what, what he means is like, you know, there's like an aerospace like like, you know, theme in that in that uh, episode as well. And it's like it, it's like there's a sense of possibility. And, and I, I do think he actually says the people are filled with hope. And that is how Florida feels right now, where if you're taking a bet on like, where is the country going to move in the next 30 years? Not like a two year bet. Like, not like, a oh, like, you know, what's the ecosystem in Miami going to look like next year? It's like, if you're taking a 30-year bet on the country, are you going to bet on California? Are you, or are you going to bet on one of these Sunbelt states where they're actually saying, like, please come here and do something new? Where the culture hasn't been established, where, you know, the, the kind of party lines aren't drawn yet. So that's kind of what I'm betting on. And we'll find out in 30 years whether I was right. I mean, I think what you're putting your finger on, Catherine, is that uh, Florida is a new frontier, right? So the frontier... There's this great book by, um, it's the sort of thing that Mark would recommend, although I don't think he has, The, Fron the Frontier in American History by Frederick Jackson Turner, which is about how the frontier, you know, the westward expansion of the United States marked the sort of American character. And, we've, it's, and we were always a frontier society. And at some point in the 60s, we just, we just decided that's it, the frontier is over. And I think there's something about U.S., speaking of American dynamism, that requires a frontier. It, re it requires being at the cutting edge of something. And it's, it's odd that it's kind of back you know, Florida was one of the original, we're back east, so to speak, but that is now the frontier, right? And then I think any any dynamic society needs some sort of frontier that it's living at. Florida's it. But it's weird because it wasn't like it wasn't built up when we were growing up here, Antonio. You know, it's like, it wasn't right. like you had Disney, it had like, you know, like it was, it was the state that everyone mocked. Again, talk about potent memes. People mocked it because of the 2000 election. 
it's interesting because it's like it's become sort of this escape route for people in the US to sort of either escape the past or escape the future. But like it it really didn't have I mean, it was it was built up. It really had, you know, it, it had sort of a, a different character when we were growing up here. The the Antonio, your your Frederick Trax and Turner thing. What's interesting though is that it's the closing of the American frontier, right? So I think it was like 1890. They the, the census was like, where there's no more space, like which is obviously not true. But but there there is no more frontier line. Like we we're, we've settled the country, and then he's he's waxing poetic on the need for a frontier. Right. No, I th- I think that's right. Um. Yeah. I mean, I always have to make some Jewish Israel comment in every show. I think. One of the things that keeps Israel a vigorous society when we, that they, they have a frontier, right, which is the West Bank and Judea and Samaria and the settlers. And so they, they do have a frontier that they're working at with some hostile other that they're sort of, uh, in some sense, taking over. Um, yeah, but dude, like, I mean, Catherine, even you would admit the, the point, Florida man is real. Florida man exists. Of course right? it is. But the, the, yeah, of course. No, of course it is. The guy showing up drunk to the 7th level with an alligator in his hands. Of course that happens. Even weirder shit than that happened when we were kids. But, but it turns out Florida man can actually build high-speed rail and California man can't, as it turns out. <laughs> That's where we are in 2023. <laughs> yeah. Remind, yeah. Remind, me, remind me the Miami Herald uh, comedian, why am I blanking on his name? Barry. Dave Barry. So yeah. <laughs> if you want to understand what Florida was like before 2020, before like all of the new memes about Florida, there's a great podcast with him and Tyler Cowen where he talks about like why writing at the Miami Herald and why living in Miami is just like the greatest thing ever. And it truly encapsulates like like pre-2020 Florida man and like how weird Miami is, but also how weird the state of Florida is. Like it is like unlike any other state in terms of like the number, like I'm from Northern Florida, for example, like Antonio's from, from Miami, totally different worlds, totally different accents, totally different types of people. Um, and if you've lived in Florida long enough and you see like the Florida man stories come out in the newspaper, you're like, you can identify like which county that Florida man comes from based on the crime he commits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that people don't realize there's, there's subtleties within the, it's funny when I grew up, reading uh dave barry and remember tropic magazine you probably remember tropic magazine which was like the new york Times. you don't remember oh really it was like the new york times magazine of the miami herald at the time it shut down at some point but his original columns appeared there uh, as well as uh, and then carl heisen as well who built a whole like mystery career based on crimes committed in florida but yeah miami i mean it's still weird but it, it used to be even weirder back then um I often said I, I went to I went to college in the United States when I, when I left at 18. That's when that's when I realized that I had not been raised in a normal part of the United States is when I when I went to college in the Midwest. Eric, aren't, aren't you fleeing Miami? Like what, what's going on? Aren't you sold on this? It looks like Miami there in the background still. I, I'm, I'm still in Miami. I'm going back to, to San Francisco. Uh, the network effects. Uh, Are you permanently leaving Miami or is it like a, a half half year thing? It, it's likely permanent. Um, oh, yeah. I, uh, He's I, moving I, to Cerebral Valley. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm still in the building, uh, you know, part of my you know, career and, and life. And, um, you know, network effects are, are compelling. But I, I do, uh, network effects of talent. I, I do, um, you know, we've critiqued San Francisco a lot on the show. And I mean, Antonio lives in San Francisco too. He just, you know. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I like maintaining the impression. I actually people have no idea where I live, which I like. By the way, Eric, um, is this all true, or is there in fact just a girlfriend that you're moving back for? Is this in fact the reality? <laughs> My girlfriend has uh, given me an ultimatum. Uh, ah, <laughs> which, oh, now we get to the real reason. Are all three of you? Well, actually, just to finish that thought, Catherine, when ambitious builders ask you where they should move, are, you know, do you say, "Hey, it depends what they're doing, of course," but like network effects are compelling, and you should go wherever the smartest people are. Or do you say, hey, it could be any, like, what, what do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I, 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 
how we started this conversation is probably the best way to think about it, which is that like you can build from anywhere because all of the smartest people have moved online. Um, and I, I genuinely believe that like, you know, if you're someone who is super extroverted out every night, you need to find a city where you're going to find like-minded people. If that's how you make connections, if that's how you build, then great. But if you're someone who's super introverted, who likes to hang out in, you know, Clubhouse, Discord, like Twitter all night, like then it doesn't really matter where you are. In fact, no one really asks where you are. Um, and I think like that's probably the beauty of kind of the moment we're in now and why we're having so many debates about where you should live and, you know, what, where, what platforms you should spend time on. It's like, actually, there's such a explosion of different ways that you can connect with the right people um, that in some ways it doesn't matter. And that's like the promise of the Internet. Like that, that was always sort of the early view was like, wouldn't it be great if some kid in Kansas could like get, you know, could, could make friends all over the world and like build something really cool, like despite where where he grows up and like that that's what's happening now. You know, like I, I talk to people all over the country and I never really ask them where they're building until like maybe the third conversation or how they're building. And, you know, I think that that's just only going to continue. I hope that only continues. Um, I can't I can't imagine a world in which like the physical confines of a city are so important to to how we're building. No, especially in the virtual world. In the physical world, that's a little different. Um, but in the virtual world, it's like, why, why does it matter? It certainly doesn't matter as much as it did five years ago. My advice to the person in their 20s at the beginning of their career is move to the Bay Area. Unless you have a specialized skill set that like you're doing aerospace or you know stuff, move maybe LA or whatever industry you're trying to do. That said, I think once you've established your network, I think there's a lot more flexibility, right? Like we're building our company in LA but to Catherine's point, everything is just in the cloud at this point. But I do think that that breaking in, it, it, all things equal, I think being in SF for a period of time is a good way to kind of get Silicon Valley uploaded into your operating system and then being able to be anywhere in the world. So that, that's my, my two cents. Maybe we'll, 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 we'll wrap on that. I, I do just want to put it out there in the universe that uh, Catherine, you'd be an ideal fourth member of this podcast. Did I, did I pass the audition? Was that <laughs> my my hope is that you get enough positive peer pressure from listeners who uh, would love to see you more regularly. I think you would take us from twenty thousand uh, listens per episode to you know rising up the ranks to a hundred hundred thousand. I highly doubt that. Yeah. I mean, look at the background. Like we love America on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is a very very pro America podcast. No, it's been it's been. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. I mean, like, what's so cool? I I, I start like. Before you guys jumped on, I was like, I'm just like so proud of you. Like you turned like this little group of shit posters into like a real <laughs> thing. It's amazing. It's like it's it's really cool. Are all three of you sending your kids to Catholic school? Mm. No. You're, wait, you're Antonio. Your kids are going to what French French school? Uh, well, the one in San Francisco is in a French school because the mother is a Francophile, and so am I. And frankly, it's the it's the cheapest private non woke school in San Francisco. Um, and then the kids of Philadelphia are going to like the public magnet school in Philadelphia, which is getting ripped apart by wokeness as we speak in the same way that Laurel was in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, the mother still believes in community and working through the system. She's institutionalist and thinks it can be fixed. I think it's the end of the world, but I'm not quite sure what they're, what they're going to do. Did, you all, did, all, did, did all of you go to Catholic school? Eric, you didn't, but did, did... No, no, I didn't. I went to Catholic school. What, what are your thoughts on it? I think Catholic schools. Again, kind of like the French thing where it's private school, but it's one tier up from public school. So you still have a lot of similar dynamics to public school, at least in the area that I grew up in, with taking the, the bottom 10% of public school and just throwing them out back to the public schools. 
that that was how my it was a I, I, Catholic school. It's like not even private parochial school, right? It was attached to a parish, but yeah, I think uh, or I guess a group of parishes, but yeah, I I, I don't know our our kids too, so I don't think we have to make those decisions quite yet. I, I'm intrigued by homeschooling, but I think it comes down to you know does you know one of the two of us want to actually do that? And right now, I have a, a pretty big commitment uh, with the companies. That's I mean, home homeschooling is probably the biggest change like like when you think of a small movement that has become just overwhelming um to go from also just like kind of weird people to like elite like elites are now talking about you know like how how do we homeschool our children or how would you even create a program around that and there's so much technology being built so that people can do that and then you also have the policy change of like actually we're going to give people money to do this it to me it's like it's probably one of the biggest policy and cultural changes of the last few years and I don't know that it would have happened if COVID hadn't happened, but like, yeah, the number of, I mean, I feel like everyone I talk to uh, is excited about the idea of potentially teaching their kids, which, you know, <laughs> it's harder Bloom, than it. Bloom two Sigma. People go look it up. It, it, it works like one-on-one -on -one tutoring, Aristotle and Alexander the Great. Like, you know, you can, you can make some great things if you have uh, attention. Yeah, but, but the monotony of singing the sound of music a hundred times uh, <laughs> in the morning a day is actually pretty rough. <laughs> it's not it's not easy I, I know we're at the end of the show but is it a good thing that homeschooling is taking off i mean the fact that you can't even agree on a curriculum even at the local level right because like u.s schooling is typically at, at, at the local i mean forget a centralized national curriculum like france has right that, that was never even the case but the fact that even like people with kids and mortgages can't agree on what to teach in schools is that like a good sign for the republic that like everyone is pulling the ripcord and saying nah i think the the kind of bull case is that you know, we created this sort of institution to educate children in the late 19th century, and the focus was on literacy. What is what is the latest stat? Something like 40% of, of fourth graders across the country like aren't able to read. So it's like you know it, the, the 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 public school system and sort of the education system that we've been using that was built in you know not even the last century, the century before, is just such a a terrible failure that I think people have woken up to. Now this question of, okay, like it's not working, let's at least fix it. So like, I actually think it's progress that people are at least saying it's broken because for a long time, you know, even like, even when we were, you know, in growing up in school, like there was sort of this, like let's put our hand in the sand, things can't be that bad. So at least now people are saying things are broken, let's try to fix it. Are there going to be a lot of failed experiments? Probably. There'll probably be people who educate their kids in ways that like aren't any better than the current system. But you might also have people who who, who figure out something and experiment in, in a way of, of, of building a new curriculum that actually, you know, in 20 years becomes sort of the basis of a public school, of, of a modern public school curriculum. So I think in some ways it's like it's good that we've just woken up that we should be educating our kids in a different way than we were, you know, 150 years ago. Algebra is not racist at my homeschool. Yeah, but then but think about how that plays out. right? I mean, the reality is public schooling is basically babysitting for working parents. A lot of it is right. And so the, what will remain is basically state subsidy babysitting for parents who have either not the means or the interest, frankly, in educating their own children. And everyone for which education actually matters and their parents do care get pulled out of the system. Although it gets subsidized, I assume, through property taxes all the same. And so, it, I don't know, it just seems a very medieval system in which everyone who takes education seriously has tutors and does homeschooling. And everybody else, the masses, is just basically state subsidized um, you know, babysitting until they get fed into the carceral you know, legal system, a lot of them. And that's, that's just the way it works, right? I, I don't know. There's a slightly dystopic tinge to it. Antonio, there is a difference, I think, in California. And I'm not, I don't want to overspeak because I don't know all the nuances here. But because of Prop 13, you have a, a 
major reliance in California and public schools on state level funding, I think, rather than in a lot of states, it's, it's your town, right? So Massachusetts, where I grew up, very liberal, every town gets to, to fund its own public schools, right? So these fancy towns that don't allow public housing and all this other kind of stuff, like they've got public schools that are better than most private schools in the country, right? Like if you live in Weston, Mass, uh, everyone votes, you know, 98% Democrat, but they don't have any public housing in Weston, Mass. Right. And so, but like their public school, like they win the math competitions and all this other kind of stuff. So I, I think like, I think part of it is at least in California, the, the state level policy is just awful because of, of prop 13. So you have no local determination of tax revenues, but that seems to make what I'm describing even worse. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, California is at the, the forefront of the dysfunction of this, but I mean, Chicago, what was the, I, I think I saw it on Twitter. They had zero students. In, in a 50 schools pass a passing grade in math zero like not like one outstanding like it's just no one passed the math score so I, I like to Catherine's point I mean it's it's clearly broken but big public sector teachers unions that have pension obligations and tend to vote in blocks are pretty powerful let's uh let's put a pin in this for uh, for a future conversation uh Catherine thank you for a lovely conversation as always, and we'll have to have to have you back at some point soon. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.